our greatest strength that we have as he talks about the hope that we have in recovery from this disease of alcoholism. I'd like to turn the meet over to Peter M. Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, thank you guys for presenting that to us. And hopefully we never forget uh, what we belong to. And uh, not only study the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, but keep alive the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes we move away so far from home, we forget where we started off and what it's supposed to look like and feel like. So uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, God separated me from alcohol on June 23rd, 1988, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I say recovered because I am, and anything less than that would be falsely humble. Um, grateful to be here. Uh, my life is um, a lot like this, one of invitation. And I get invitations to go places and speak. I get invitations to sponsor men. I get invitations to my family's life. My life is one of invitation. And so I suit up and show up and get here and try to be the best example of the big book someone will read because I might be the only copy they ever read. So I have a responsibility, not only to myself and my recovery, but I have a responsibility to Alcoholics Anonymous and a loving God who freely gives me this gift every day. Um, I want to thank everyone uh, on the committee for having me here, and uh, my friend Ralph, um, who uh, got me down here, asked me to come down here. He's here somewhere. I don't see him. There he is. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, this is his first time doing this, and I think he did a hell of a job, although he was calling me like every other day. If any, are you okay? <laughs> Nothing changed, man. I'm still good. Don't worry about it. Uh, but I, I'd rather have that because I, I, we were sharing some stories over the weekend, and um, I've gone to places where the uh, first time I went to London to do one of these deals, I landed in Heathrow. I've never been there. Heathrow's a, a, a madhouse. It's people all over the place. I don't have a cell number to call this person. And I get there, and I'm there about 45 minutes, and no one's there. At least Ralph had a billboard that said Peter, you know? <laughs> so I'm just waiting for someone to show up in Heathrow, and I don't really know where to go if they don't show up. <clears throat> and out of the crowd comes this guy running, and out of breath, he says, that's the alcoholic. It's got to be him, you know? <laughs> And he was 45 minutes late, and I had these two big uh, luggage pieces, and he didn't even say, I'll take one. He says, follow me. And uh, so I'm dragging all this stuff after a seven, eight-hour flight, and um, he forgot where he parked his car. So <clears throat> now it's interesting. He just left the car like 10 minutes ago. And so we're walking around Heathrow, and he didn't even take my, my strap-on back. He, I, I just, there I was. And um, it was interesting driving there because everything's on the opposite side here. So I kept doing this in the car. I think it was going to have a head-on collision. And uh, he was oblivious to my woe. And um, it was – I've gone to some places. Very interesting when you do this, man. But I'm grateful to be here. This is like my uh, probably sixth time to Louisiana. And uh, when Ralph called, I, I was hoping the calendar was clear to get here. I, I mean, I love coming down here. I eat a whole bunch and uh, get to meet some really neat folks and pack into the stream of life here. So I thank you for having me. Um, I'm grateful to get to share about this message. 
The message that was given to me when I got here in 1988, when I really didn't have a clue on how to stay sober. And if someone said they had 90 days sober, a year sober, I, I really wondered how they can pull that off because I had gone through seven treatment centers. My seven treatment center, I arrived in 1988. And with six behind me being exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of the contemporary AA, bless their hearts, I thought I was one of those guys who were hopeless. And who am I kidding? So when I would see folks get chips and 90-day chips or 30-day chips or a one-year coin, I, I don't know how you can do this because I'm not going to last real long. And dying looked like a good way to go for a long, long time. But something happened. Something happened to me internally. And uh, when that goes on, something shows up with the teachers. And what happened to me in 1988, God sent these teachers to me. People were armed with the facts in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And little by slowly, they piecemeal me some of this information. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But they all approached me with a sense of urgency. And it wasn't that I lacked a sense of urgency. I just didn't know where to turn. I wanted to stay sober, but always got drunk. I had a powerful desire to stay sober, but always got drunk. What, what am I doing wrong? And they showed me the solution to Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I haven't looked back since. So when I stand at the door and I wait for a new one to come in, I never, ever tell them make 90 meetings in 90 days or put the plug in a jug or don't drink and go to meetings because those are the remedies that failed for me. And so I have a responsibility to give away what worked for me. And that is the big book, which has the 12 steps, which allows me to get to a God of my understanding, have a spiritual transformation, a revolution where my life is made new. And I get spiritual wings and off I go to go fly and carry God's message in my home's occupations and here in my affairs. But always here first, looking for another drunk to work with. I get to, I've gotten to meet lots of uh, what we call lovingly our old-timers in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were 12-step geniuses. They tell stories after stories after stories how they baited the drunk and brought them here. You know what's interesting? In my travels, I speak to some folks in AA, don't even know what a 12-step call is. Never went on a 12-step call. Or if a drunk walks into an AA meeting and says, oh, my God, he's drunk. What are we going to do with him? I say, this is AA. Where's he going to go, you know? So, so I'm really grateful, and, and I, I don't give that lip service. I, I don't have a life, guys. I know that sounds lame, and what I mean by that, my life belongs to God and Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have a life. I don't manage my life. I'm in charge of anything. Just God allows me to suit up and show up with the life of invitation. It's none of my business, and he seems to be doing a pretty good job because I'm here coming up on a 24th AA birthday, clean cut, shaven, a little bit of dignity, and a recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I haven't hurt anyone in a really long time. I'm, I'm self-supporting through my own contributions also, which is pretty cool for a drunk, huh? <laughs> I haven't borrowed money in a long, long time. <clears throat> this is a sacred place. Alcoholics Anonymous is a sacred place. And if we haven't found out, if you haven't found out that AA is sacred, I hope you stick around to find out the sacredness of the ground we walk on. Whether it's a dirty old church basement or a nice little conference like this, it's sacred ground when we meet. The sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have a responsibility to treat it as such. I've gone to so many meetings where the speaker gets up there dressed like they're going to commit a felony as soon as they're done talking. Right? And I see people at the door not greeting anyone. 
And a new one walks in and we expect or assume that they know their way around AA. And many of them don't. I know what it was like when I first walked in here. I was scared to death. But someone said, welcome. And they didn't care I had seven treatment centers. They didn't care I was homeless. They didn't care I panhandled. They didn't care I wasn't dressed nice or didn't smell too good. They just, welcome. Have a cup of coffee. Sit down. We have a way out. <clears throat> they didn't judge me. They didn't take a financial report. You know? all-inclusive. And I will tell you, it was the old timers who were standing at the door. What, for me, old time was 25 and 35 years. They were these guys standing at the door saying, welcome, young fella, come on in. I remember going to a meeting. Uh, I was in Staten Island, living in Staten Island, New York, and I was sober a handful of years by then, but I never went to this meeting. And I, and I walked in, it was a Sunday night meeting, and it was an old timer, Artie B. And he looked across the room, he knew he didn't know me. And he put down his coffee and he made a beeline for me. He says, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I told him I was around a little while. He said, he introduced me to everyone. I don't see that at a lot of our meetings. Oh, there's a new person. They'll be fine. I got to get up front because I have to share tonight. To tell you in a general way what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, and how I'm trying to be today. My, my first drunk uh, came, my first drink came when I was 14 years old. I grew up in a place called Brooklyn, New York, uh, where the only requirement for membership was a pinky ring, sunglasses, and gold jewelry back there. Uh, we changed uh, how it works and uh, how you're doing. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> uh, for me, growing up was a lot different than the way I live now. Uh, growing up, I had a mom at home who suffered from what we suffer from, alcoholism. And she was also addicted to pills. Valium was like the M&M at the time. They were giving them to everyone, his mother's little helper. And my mom was supposed to take Valium not to drink. And like a good alky, she did both. She had some serious psych issues. And I grew up with this, a very unstable foundation. And I have my story. We all have our stories of what it was like at home. But when mine was growing up and watching mom pass out, watching mom get sick, watching mom go into one treatment, well, we didn't call them treatment centers, they was institutions, one after the other, and going to a psychiatrist, and, and all these different remedies, and getting medicated more, but never to AA. And my mom suffered that incomprehensible demoralization, and on January 23rd of 1973, after a few attempts, she finally committed, uh, uh, succeeded in committing suicide. She took her life because the pain of what we suffer from, she had no solution to, and that's what people like us do. And I, quite frankly, my design for living was taken right out of my lap. Everything revolved for me around mom. And I had a guy at home who was cunning, baffling, and powerful. I called him dad. He was a tough guy, legitimate tough guy, a street guy. Nothing, nothing soft and fuzzy about this guy. He looked you right eyeball to eyeball, and if you blinked, you were lying. I blinked all the time, right? Well, when my mom passed away, I had to deal with this guy and I had no idea how to operate around this guy. I was so afraid of this man. I mean, he would walk in the room back then and I'd bow. I lie when the truth was, would work out because I was so fear-based and insecure. I was totally intimidated by my dad. And we didn't get along for years, not until I got sober and landed in Alcoholics Anonymous is our relationship better than it's ever been, but back then it was different. So my friends were drinking cold 45 beer on a corner one night, Saturday night. They were hanging out, and they were drinking beer. And I was very reluctant to drink with them because my dad would give me these stern warnings about not becoming a product of my environment, not to hang out with those bums on the corner. 
And don't you dare bring any of those girls who drink with the guys on the corner by this house. I love the guys who are uh, the girls who drank with the guys on the corner. Right? Well, I listened all the time until this one Saturday night. And I would show up to life with all these voices, all this stuff going on. A lot of shame attached to my mom taking her life because everyone now in the neighborhood knew what happened. That's the guy whose mom killed herself. And I would go into classes and there would always be a little hush going on. And I'd walk with this stuff besides not feeling too good about me being me anyway. Between ages 8 and about 10 years old, there was a distant relative of mine uh, who was uh, being inappropriate with me in a very intimate kind of way. And I was feeling violated and dirty at the same time. And there was no one I can talk to about this. So we, a lot of us have this stuff that we walk with and don't know what to do and have no idea how to process this. What do we do? And this one Saturday night, my friends are drinking beer, and I reluctantly put my hand in there and took a few pops off the court. And it went down and nothing happened. I always thought my dad would drive up. He's the type of guy, his presence shows up an hour before he actually arrives, right? And so I was waiting for his Lincoln Continental to turn a corner. He didn't show up. The cops didn't show up. So I drank some more, and I drank some more, and I drank some more. And somewhere while I was doing this, I start to feel the effects produced by alcohol. I got nice. I got lighter. I got better looking. I got taller. She got really pretty. It got really interesting, right? And I had beer muscles, and I, that night I turned into like Al Pacino by the end of the night. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, when you're drinking, you swear she's starting to look like Bo Derek, and you come to in the morning, she looks like Bo Diddley, and you wonder how you got into that jam, right? right. <clears throat> so I was joyous, happy, and free, and I was present to the moment. I had no before. I had no later on. I loved the effect produced by alcohol. I wasn't attached to a thinking mind. The pain of my mom was removed. The fear of my dad removed. Me being me, not good enough, not smart enough, not told enough, not good enough, whatever it was, removed. I was good. I was good. Bill says in his story, I had arrived. Very powerful words. We all get that. The first drunk, we get rocketed. We land someplace that we never experienced before, and everything is nice. I love the effect produced by alcohol. It was not a problem for a long, long time. That's why we go back to it, because it works. It shuts down the thinking mind, which is really our God. The mind does nothing but manufacture fear, and it's, manif it's manifested in resentments. It manifested in how we see the world, our misperceptions and conceptions about everything, all fear-based. It gets so loud, it gets so painful, we put down a drink and suddenly it goes away. I'm not so bad. I can actually pack into the stream of life. I can be okay. We get delusions of grandeur from time to time, but at some point, alcohol works. I knew nothing about this phenomenon called craving, that I not only liked the effect produced by alcohol, but my body said, send more down. Craving is always intensified, never satisfied when I drink alcohol. I'm the guy on page 21. And trust me, I got into some non-conference approved dry goods along the way, but I could never get away from alcohol. I walked away from that stuff because the detoxes were just horrific, god-awful. And some of the things I did to get that stuff was embarrassing and humiliating. But no matter how embarrassing or humiliating it was to get a drink, I'd still go back, and that was my master. It owned me. I didn't know that at 14 years old. I knew nothing about a mental obsession to alcohol. 
What I found out is being physically separated from alcohol has little to do with being a recovered alcoholic, so I still have the mental obsession. And this other third piece called the spiritual malady, and going to meetings doesn't treat a spiritual malady. It's a Band-Aid on an open wound in our glorious fellowship where we commence shoulder to shoulder. But there's something else that's needed, the vital spiritual component, because I need to go home at some point. The meeting ends at a certain time. I need to be out there working, driving, shopping, taking care of kids, and sometimes my AAs aren't around. Then what do I do? Run from meeting to meeting to meeting? There's still a gap between meetings. I need to put my head on the pillow at night. What do I do then? Medicate myself. Absolutely. Unless I got God. The same effects I got from drinking alcohol, I bet experience being joyous, happy, and free, and not restless here and discontented from God. You know, what are the effects I'm getting produced by God right now, this morning, in Alcoholics Anonymous? Do I have a God relationship? Experientially, can we talk about what it's like living in the world of the Spirit? Or can we still talk about what it's like currently living with a mind-dominated life? living along the lines of human consciousness, which is all fear. We see with fear, we speak with fear, we hear with fear, everything's fear. We're sizing up constantly. We're never present. We're judging, we're criticizing, we're figuring out who's got an angle, what I need to say, I need to sound profound, I need to be good, I need to do this. All this stuff, it's, it's a whole game, it's a whole show that's going on. At some point, that breaks down, and I need to get a drink just to be okay again. If you're anything like me, I need a drink just to take a deep breath. I thought it was the coolest thing. One day I realized that I can go in the shower and, and have a Jack Daniels waiting for me right on the sink. And every once in a while I could read out and drink and go back in the shower. This was the coolest thing. I had to drink to take a shower. I had to drink before breakfast. Then breakfast wasn't even important. And then bathing wasn't important. And taking care of myself wasn't important. But drink always was. And I'd do anything to get the drink. At 14 years old, that wasn't in the plan. I, I liked the effects produced by alcohol. I loved the first drunk. My friends went home that night, <clears throat> and I remember going into instant sobriety, like last calls, instant sobriety. What do you mean last call? I'm just getting it going, right? <clears throat> and my friends went home, and I had to go home, and I remember waking up the next day, and I didn't experience blackouts, but I, re I remembered everything. I loved what went on the night before. I was roughhousing with the guys. I had no fear. I talked to the girls. The music was loud. I loved the effects produced by alcohol, and I couldn't wait for the following Saturday to roll around because I was not going to wait. I'm going in head first. I went down to the park on Sunday morning. We used to play basketball. Um, the whole lot of ball plays when I was growing up. We used to go to this one park on a Sunday morning. The older guys used to play basketball, and I was pretty good, so they let me play. But when I walked into the park this one Sunday morning, right after my first drunk, I walked in, and my department shouted. I was a big shot, and I was on with the facts, and I had a solution. My shoulders were this wide. I got my passage into manhood the night before, and more importantly, underneath all of that was I finally found a panacea for my ills. I found something that would work for me. I got my manhood through a quart of cold 45 beer. This is a great thing. I can deal with the rest of the week. I can deal with the voices in the head and the horrific pain of mom losing because it was not even six months uh, after she passed that I had my first drunk, so that pain was raw. Nowadays, it's different. People talk about stuff. We're very aware of therapists and things like that. When I was growing up, that, that stuff was foreign. Dad didn't sit down and say, how are you feeling today? Are you feeling hypersensitive and insecure? I mean, you know, 
<clears throat> my dad would say, get dressed and go to school. Don't think about it. You know, I mean, that was the remedy, you know. So we didn't talk about this stuff. I'll tell you, it wasn't, I was sober a couple of years till we sat down, my brothers and my dad, and talked about what happened that night when she died. It was something that was never discussed. Mom got sick. That's how mom was sick. We told people she had all kinds of illnesses everyone knew. Almost about two years, two and a half years sober, and I'm thinking about it, that we sat down and discussed this openly and how we felt. But that's how it was growing up. Nothing is discussed. So the next morning, I went down to the park and played ball, and I was thinking about the following Saturday was going to roll around, and it did. And I got right in there, and I drank some. And I got to that place out there that's indescribably wonderful, experienced the phenomenon called craving. I always had to drink more. I'm in the treatment center business, and they always ask clients, what's your drug of choice? And I says, that's wrong language. You mean, what's your drug of no choice? What's your drink of no choice? Because if we had a choice, we get burned, we walk away. Right? So it wasn't a choice in what I was doing. I just loved the effects produced by alcohol, and that's how it disguised itself. This feels good. Take more. Not knowing that I was on a road paved right to hell. So I got drunk that Saturday, and I got drunk the following Saturday, and I start thinking, well, not, let's get this going on a Friday, Friday and Saturday, Friday and Saturday, got to roll into Sunday, and then, you know what, why wait till Friday? Let's start Wednesday, right? And so I'm drinking with the guys on the corner, but we start to experience consequences because of our drinking. I had a loving family. My dad was doing the best he could with what he had. He's a street guy. He's not educated. He knew nothing about alcoholism, knew nothing about how do you feel today. Or he gave orders. That's what he did. He was a boot camp sergeant. That's how it, and he did a good job with my other two brothers. And it wasn't his fault I wound up an alcoholic. It's the way it is. And I have two younger brothers who idolized me, quite frankly. I was the older brother. They listened to the same music. They played the same sports. They tried to dress like me, and they felt safe around their older brother. That's how I was brought up. Protect my brothers. Protect my brothers. I was starting, the neighborhood was starting to change. It was starting to get a little edgy. So my dad says, keep an eye on your brothers, is what I, what I did. But then something changed. Alcoholism started to do what alcoholism does. And my behavior started to change. And my perceptions became more twisted up. My, con- my perceptions and conceptions about everything started to get twisted up, and my brothers would become afraid of me because I wasn't a happy drunk hanging out on the corner. I quickly went to venom. I quickly went to anger. I quickly went to self-pity, and they got all of it. And they would tell my dad about what went in the night before. And my dad would corner me the next day and read me the riot act about what I was doing with my life. And you know how that goes. You wait for them to shut up and you go out the door and do it all over again. I had to figure out ways not to get caught. And so I went on this journey right to hell. And uh, I remember waking up in the morning and uh, needing money. And my dad used to carry large sums of money on him. <clears throat> he would go down for breakfast and I'd sneak into his bedroom, go into his pants pocket and take some money. I did this for a while, didn't think much about it. Alcoholism doesn't allow me to say, I'm stealing, this is wrong. It says, you're stealing, don't get caught, right? And so one morning I woke up and my dad was still sleeping. I needed some money again. And I went into this big china closet and I stole from my dad's checkbook. I saw a checkbook, so I took a check. I forged his name, went down to the local store. They all knew my dad. How's your dad doing? I says, great, he gave me this check. Anything for your dad, and they cash it. 20 bucks, 20 bucks, 
40 bucks, 60 bucks. I had a little ATM going. And I did this for a while, and I get my liquor. And I played a big shot with my friends. I had some money on me. I knew nothing about checking statements. That stuff came back in the mail, right? <laughs> it was about as sharp as a bowling ball back then, right? <clears throat> and this stuff came back in the mail, and my dad came looking for me. And this was not a good day, <laughs> right? My dad makes Tony Soprano look like Tinkerbell. I mean, it's just, you know. And uh, I was sitting in a car. I never forget, I was sitting in a car with a young lady. I, I, well, we got drunk the night before, so we were in love the next day. And, um, and I was sitting in the car, and my dad drove up, and he got out of the car, and he walked across the street, and he screamed my name. He threw the cigarette down, and he has this thing where he points in like this. When the cigarette gets thrown down, and he walks towards you, and this eye goes up, run. <laughs> So I ran. <clears throat> but right before I ran, I says, honey, that's my dad. You talk to him. And I ran away. And, uh, <clears throat> so off I went. My dad caught me. And uh, I went to my first treatment center. And back then, it was 28 days in treatment. And you were good to go. Now, now the insurance company's back then. first treatment center and um, we had little groups and we had art therapy and we had dance therapy. This was a fiasco, right? And they took us for physical fitness. I just want to talk about that for a minute. They took us to a gym about this big with a basketball hoop on that side and a basketball hoop on that side. And we had crackheads, we had dauphines, and we had the drunks and the pillheads detoxing, right? <laughs> and they gave us a basketball. <laughs> So the ball ran from, rolled from this end to that end, and we did this. I'm not getting it. You get it. <laughs> and so we went outside and smoked a cigarette, and that was physical fitness that for people today. So it really wasn't helpful to have a spiritual revolution. I was so not ready for this. I remember being in a treatment center, and Miami Vice was a hot show at the time, right? And Don Johnson was my higher power, right? And uh, <clears throat> the speakers would come in at 8 on a Friday night, and Miami Vice would be on at 9 o'clock on a Friday night. And what I would write on the big chalkboard was, Miami Vice, 9 p.m., speakers, please leave promptly. <clears throat> Now, I had an H&I commitment for a few years. I've had a few of them. And I bring meetings up to the detoxes and stuff. And I know the guys who are like me. I want to strangle them, you know. But that's where I was. I thought it was a huge inconvenience that I have to listen to this war story for an hour when I can't wait to get out of here to get jacked up again. But that's where I was. So 28 days in treatment, and I got out and did the same thing all over again. I had not conceded to my innermost self I was an alcoholic. In fact, when, even when I conceded to my innermost self, right around treatment center number five, that still wasn't enough to get me well. It was just a willingness, but not enough because there were no teachers there. There's a big difference between God's grace and being spiritually fit. Vision for You talks about patience, willingness, and labor to duplicate what our founding members did. Labor is work. Last check, labor is work. I got to get my hands in the mud and get dirty. I can't do it by just hanging around. So 28 days later, I go back to the same vicious cycle again. 
Had a girlfriend meet me at the door. I inquired about Alcoholics Anonymous, picked up a jug and cracked the seal, and off I was again. Because I was away from alcohol for 28 days, it doesn't mean I got cured. The mental obsession was just chomping at the bit, and the phenomenon called craving was waiting to be lit. Right, And with the big tricks, there is some of us, and I've heard many stories like this, I'm one of them, we go down, have a drink after a relapse, and we say, you know what, I had a beer or two, I didn't blow up, so the next day we do it again, pretty good, go down to the bar the third time, and then we disappear, because once we have one, it's just a matter of time before, boom, some of us, which my last few drunks were like this, I drink, you find me in a dumpster. If, God forbid, I was to drink today, you'd find me in a dumpster tomorrow morning because the progression was like that for me. It was instant blow up. So the illness works different on different people, but once we drink, it's over. It's just a matter of time before we're back to drinking worse than we ever did because of the progression. And the time away from a drink doesn't mean much when, God forbid, we relapse because it's as if we've been drinking all along. If, God forbid, I was to pick up a drink, I'd have 24 years of drinking. Imagine what I would look like. I don't think you'd invite me back. (laughs) What What started to happen was after my second and third treatment center, my family was suffering from alcoholism, and none of them are alcoholics. We had the leftover of what mom uh, brought to us. Not purposely. She was sick and suffering. She brought alcoholism into the family. She passes away, and my family's left with me, full-blown, pretty much from day one. And my family, by the time God sobered me up in 1988, my family was suffering from full-blown alcoholism. And only because of the sacred fellowship of Al-Anon, and I thank you, Al-Anons, for giving me a family back and putting them back together again. they never been down that route. Al-Anon said, welcome, like we say, welcome. And little by slowly, they put my brothers back together. And they even sought outside help. But at the time, my family was suffering from alcoholism. I don't get, I don't get, and I hope I never do get, getting to an AA meeting or getting to a podium and allow me to get on a soapbox here for a minute and say, don't drink and go to meetings and I'm a winner. All I have to do is not drink today and I'm a winner. It's wonderful we're not drinking, but what does a winner mean? Have we made amends? Are we clear on all the amends that the people we've harmed? Have we taken this message into our home occupation and affairs? Have we tried to reconcile the differences? Because our book says we're like tornadoes roaring to the light of others. I left damage and debris, and just going to a meeting and filling my belly is selfish and arrogant. When I'm really in the sunlight of the Spirit, I get moved by God to go back. The same way I was driven to drink, God will move me to go back and, re- and reconcile and make amends. And what we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, because of the power of God, we get to heal. We heal the lives of others. And if you don't believe that, stick around and go through this work and watch what happens in your own family. Watch what happens to the men you sponsor. Watch what happens to other members in AA and their families. Do a bunch of 12-step calls. Walk into that house. It feels drunk. It looks drunk. It looks sick and fear-based. And then take that prospect to the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they get a God of their understanding and they're moved to go carry the message home. Whether those folks were in Al-Anon or therapy or not, that home has changed. It's been healed. 
We have great power in Alcoholics Anonymous. The misbelief is I'm always going to be powerless. I'm always going to be powerless. Where does it say that? Powerless over alcohol. Yeah, God removes the problem. Step 10 promise and gives us, gives me great power to go work with others. No longer powerless. We get the power of God and we get moved by God rather than driven by the illness. This is what we ought to be shouting about from the rooftops in Alcoholics Anonymous about the great works God does in our sacred place called AA, how we get reborn and resurrected. What was my family supposed to do every time I was in treatment? I'm in the business. One drunk shows up in my treatment center. The whole family's really there with them. A newcomer comes into AA and you say, how's, you start talking to them, how's home life doing? My wife's not talking to me. She's filing for divorce. She has a restraining order. My kids hate me. I just lost my job. People are affected and infected by this thing called alcoholism, and they didn't do anything. We all have dysfunctional families. I can't hang my hat on that. Everyone's got a story in their home. Everyone has bad things happen to them. I can't just hang my hat on that and say, well, I guess I can drink then. No, we get ground power to go heal and no longer attached to what other people do, no longer attached to people's opinions, no longer attached to external conditions being a remedy for this internal illness called alcoholism. And little by slowly, as we start to wake up, my insides match my outsides and vice versa. What you see is what you get, what's and all, and that's okay. Living in all three sides of the triangle, we become whole and complete. We finally get to experience the wholeness within, uh, an okayness within. No beginning, no end, just is. And we're centered with God rather than being self-centered. We go from page 62 in the big book to 63 and life has changed. How's that possible? The spiritual life doesn't make any sense. The spiritual life makes no sense to a thinking mind. Can't figure out God, can't try to understand God, can't comprehend God, nor AA or the 12 steps, but we can certainly experience it. Hmm? I got a job. My dad got me a job as a, a longshoreman on the Brooklyn docks. I was a dock worker. Not training ground for spiritual growth. Men were fed up with the day at sunrise. There were a lot of shenanigans going on down there. A lot of rough folks who were associated, street folks, tough folks, who were associated with that environment. And I show up like this, you know, this lamb showing up to the slaughter. You know, I'm walking there thinking I am all it. And there were hardcore guys down there who didn't care about anything other than give me my paycheck. That was it. They hated their job. They weren't too happy with their lives. A lot of them were drinking. There were some other shenanigans, a lot of stuff going on. And my dad was the head of this whole operation. And he said, well, I'll bring you down here to toughen you up a little bit. You'll make there was really good money to be made, and you'll get on with your life because it's going sideways. And in a short time, I watched my dad walk with the hideous four horsemen. My dad was always head up, shoulder squared, fear nothing. A few years of me working with him and him being around my alcoholism, my dad walked, hunched over. And every morning there'd be a knock on his office door, your kid did this and your kid did that. That affects people in a very negative way. My dad would walk around with shame, embarrassment, guilt over what I was doing. And so were my brothers and so were my grandparents and so was my family and I became the black sheep. Right? And I hated all of them. It didn't give, alcoholism doesn't give me a seed of compassion or open-mindedness or understanding. It's all about me. How come you don't see what I'm going through? I played the mom card for years, by the way. 
I started to do a lot of bad things down there, and a job that was impossible to get fired from, I got fired from. They told me, my dad said, don't come back anymore. I start to borrow money from people, the wrong type of people, who wanted a little bit back each week until you can pay the whole thing off. And they came looking for you if you didn't pay it. And they weren't bringing Dunkin' Donuts. They were looking for you. And my dad would get into these scrapes and bail me out of problem after problem after problem. But I didn't care. And I went into my third and fourth and fifth treatment center. And around my fifth treatment center, um, I remember uh, going in there for nine weeks. I was in my fifth treatment center for nine weeks. And I was uh, discharged on a Saturday and drunk on Monday again. What did it take? Right? Nine weeks in treatment, I got physically better. I was able to run back and forth along that basketball court. I can do art therapy and dance therapy. I do all the things. I could run a group. I knew how to do treatment. I knew all the answers. I knew all the questions. I knew they showed these charts about what makes me an alcoholic and how alcohol gets broken down in the body and what happens to the brain. I can write a thesis on it, but give me a double before I do it, right? And on the way into the fifth treatment center, I swore off alcohol. I remember my dad uh, got me this, uh, this little apartment in Brooklyn, a little studio apartment, furnished it for me. Brought me clothes and shoes and boxes, TV, everything you would need to kind of get going. And what I did with this place was brought like the Bowery into it. Never paid rent, almost burned the place down and wreaked havoc, caused havoc on the landlord. Sold the TV, sold the shoes and boxes, clothes and garment bags, the clock radio, everything. Try to carry out the refrigerator one day. I wasn't bathing and there was laundry all over the place. The bed was soiled. This is how I was living because of alcohol. But if I had a Mr. Boston Blackberry brand, it was all all right. I got fired from the job. And with this apartment, I got thrown out. And I went into my fifth treatment center. And uh, I was discharged on a Saturday, as I said, drunk on a Monday. And there was no job. There was no girlfriend. And there were the streets. Now, if anyone's been on the streets for one night and being homeless, you know that's way too long. When you're out there a little bit longer, I got destroyed. I got eaten alive out there. And I would sleep in a hallway, sleep in an abandoned building, sleep with, you know, her or sleep with her anywhere. You know, just crash out. And I made my sixth treatment center, and what I did with my sixth treatment center, like I did with a couple of others, would sign myself out AMA. And I do this with clients now when they want to do that. I says, if you leave, you're going to get drunk, and they don't hear that. They told me, Peter, if you leave, you're going to drink, you're going to die. I didn't hear that because the obsession to drink alcohol is that powerful and no human power relieved me of my alcoholism. God could and would if he was sought. The hook is we have to bottom out. We have to get to that place of incomprehensible demoralization where I say, I don't care where I go, where I land, what treatment center, what AA meeting, what I do for a living, who I'm with, I don't care. I don't want to die. And in that place where it feels so bad, it's actually a great thing. I wasn't there yet. And in my sixth treatment center, it was a day and a half, and I signed myself out. There was nowhere to go. Lost this little apartment. It was a pigsty anyway. I got thrown out. And I used to walk through the streets. I don't say this for shock value. It's just it's been with me because in a couple of weeks I make an AA birthday, and it seems God gives me this every year like where I was and where he's allowed me to be. 
But this time in 1988, this time of year in 1988, I, I knew nothing about June 10th being AA's birthday. Are you kidding me? You know, where's my drink? This, this time in 1988, um, I was walking through the streets with uh, these... I hadn't bathed, and I had these construction boots with big holes in them, and I had these soil pants on, and I had a turtleneck and a jacket. And this time, I remember, uh, up in June, it starts to warm up in New York this time of year, and I had a turtleneck and a jacket to hold a jug, and I was sweating and cold at the same time. And I was shaking a lot, and I hadn't eaten, I don't know how long, I probably weighed about 130 pounds at the time. And I had the black eyes and the ribs coming out. And I was just really in serious, serious trouble. And if I live to be 100, I'll never be as old as the day I walked into AA in 1988. I was in serious trouble. And that's how I was walking around. Still thinking there's got to be a way out of this. I remember winding up outside the Port Authority, Midtown Port Authority in New York. And I was on the Ninth Avenue side, if anyone knows that area, Ninth Avenue side of the Port Authority, uh, at around 39th, 40th Street, 38th Street. And it's not like, you know, a good place to be back in the day. I don't know how I got there, what happened to me afterwards, but there I was. A book says, the the flimsy reed proves to be the loving and powerful hand of God, and God will throw us this life raft. He interrupts our death, and by doing that, we will have these moments of cloudy where we're struck sober. We can be blind drunk and struck sober when God reaches his hand out, or we realize there's a hand there. And I had this moment outside the Port Authority where I was struck sober in the middle of this mess, in the middle of this chaos. I was struck sober. And it was as if my life passed before me because I thought of my mom, I had thought of my dad and my kid brother. A lot of things went before me. And what I did in that moment was curse God. Because it's your fault I landed here. It's your fault I don't have a mom. It's your fault. And it went on and on and on with very, very earthy language. I don't know what happened to me afterwards. What I now know is sometimes that chaos in my life now, what appears to be chaos, I can move through that with stillness. I come from a place of stillness. I come from a place of stillness no matter what's going on, no longer trying to interpret anything that's going on, just being there. And very often God is the orchestrator of the chaos to drive me back to him. You never notice how defects of character, when we bottom out, where do we turn? God. We have this little hidden life going on because that alcoholism goes underground and resurfaces in other areas and we bottom out, where do we turn? God. Our book says God will discipline us in a simple way we just outlined. So the chaos then, the chaos now is one place. Bring me home. Are you ready? Very often we say, you know, God, God, God wasn't there. My Heavenly Father was always present. When are you going to listen? I have both my hands out. Hold on. We say no. You know how our kids do that? When they're angry, I hate you, and they walk away. Then they bottom out and they say, Mommy, Daddy, fix my toy. We do the same thing. God's saying, listen, I can fix this mess. I love you with all my heart and soul, unconditionally. I don't care what you did. I love you. Just let me fix it, right? That's why he threw a third step. He knew how to hook us somewhere, right? And we say, no, I'll do it on my own. I don't need you. And we go off and he says, you want me to fix it? No, I got it. And then we bottom out and we say, okay, fix the damn thing. And then we walk away and say, see what I did? But I cursed God outside this Port Authority and went about my way 
for a little bit longer. I lingered. I used to, I remember I used to walk through the streets, not like I do now, fairly healthy posture. I used to be hunched over. I used to walk slow. I was always sick. I hadn't eaten, hadn't bathed, never, never had enough to drink. And I got to this place, a lot of you guys identify, where you can't get drunk, you can't get sober, you're just drinking, just to breathe. Uh, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. I don't care what I had to do to get money for a drink. I don't care who saw me. I don't care where I was. I don't care how filthy the hallway was. I don't care what rooftop. I don't care who I was sleeping with. I don't care. I just need money for a drink. I used to panhandle by the Manhattan Bridge in Lower Manhattan. Right? See the truck drivers I used to know from the waterfront. I said, kid, what are you doing down here? I'm stuck with my car. Can you throw me 10 bucks for gas? They knew what I was doing. But my bottom had to be my bottom because my Heavenly Father knew that's where he had to take me for me to turn back and say, okay, I'm done. Please help me. And I had to approach this with the desperation of a drowning man. A day shy, a day later, of June 23rd, you have a different speaker here tonight. And I still approach this with the desperation of a drowning man. At the beginning, it's because I had to and then I wanted to. I get to. I work with. I get to. I get to go to AA. I get to write inventory. I get to have a sponsor. I get to sponsor men. I get to do what I do for a living, which is what I love. I get I get to travel. I get to suit up and show up. I get to. I'm no longer in bondage. I'm no longer strapped down to alcoholism. I've been set free by a loving God as we all can be set free by a loving God. And the remedy, the prescription form is in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and we keep it hidden in a lot of our meetings. We have some folks walk around saying, I'm upstanding member of AA. I got 40 years or 30 years. I'm a good. think they get away with that if Bill and Bob are floating around. I don't think they get away with that, the first members, founding members, because they approach it with a sense of urgency. Now, I wasn't there, obviously, but if we do enough history reading, we'll see how they approach this with a sense of urgency. Now it's hang around. Wait for the miracle to happen. <laughs> You're here. It's happened. Now let's get busy. Okay? That's just giving resp- taking responsibility out of my lap and hoping someone else picks it up. Wait for the miracle to happen. I love this one. Hey, want a drink? I'm not calling you if I want a drink. <laughs> I'll call you to bail me out when I get locked up, right? Yeah. So I kind of moving along here and in the streets and in serious trouble, and I, I land in a hallway. I wasn't a big bar drinker. I felt uncomfortable drinking in bars because I knew it was going to happen to me in a short time. I was either going to get beat up or thrown out. And I couldn't drink at a bar price anyway. If I went to a bucket of blood, I was afraid. I like to go to a liquor store, get a jug, and go into a hallway. When I had a car, I would drink and drive. 
but no one around because when I get sick, I can get sick all alone and leave me alone. I was a type of drunk. You put me in a corner. I'll pass out in a little while. I'll get stupid. I'll cry. I'll do all kinds of things we do. I'll pass out when I come to just have another bottle and just keep me going. That's how I drank. And a bar was not for that. So I was looking for a hallway one day, and it was June 23rd, 1988, and I was in another hallway in a roach and rat and disgusting uh, uh, infested hallway, and um, Bill says in his story, how the courage to do battle was not there. It was done, and I knew it. And in this place of complete wreckage, I was experiencing the death of self before the physical death, which is necessary for people like us to wake up and have a transformation. We need to experience the depth of self. Even the, the manifestations of self, as we know it, we can no longer rely upon. Because people like us, if I have a little cord to pull on, I will pull on it. When everything is cut, that's when we get well. For me, there was no relationship. There was no job. There was no money. I lost contact with my family. I was standing alone, raw. It was the greatest thing that could have happened to me. Because in that place, I begged the same God I cursed to his father, if you're out there, please take me from this. It was a little bit more graphic than that. But that was the sincere plea, meeting God with a pure intent. Not like if, get me sober so she takes me back, I need my job back. It was just, please, I, I don't want to die. And what came to me was enough, and I have other work for you to do. I said, oh, my God, I'm hearing voices. I was completely out of my mind that day. I hope all of us leave here completely out of our mind. Because when we're in our mind, that's where the problem is. We cannot experience God in the mind. That requires thought. And the same guy who's doing the thinking is the same guy or woman who knows how to get us drunk. I need to be completely out of my mind, away from resistance, and to experience God. It's when I'm out of my mind, I'm great. People ask me, I shared about this yesterday, what are you going to talk about? I'm not interested. I don't know. God will do it for me. I'm not planning to talk. I'm not planning how I'm going to work with a newcomer. No thought. Just God do what God's going to do. June 23rd, 1988, I was completely out of my mind for the first time, probably since when I was a little kid. I wasn't thinking, oh, this is a God experience. I can't wait to get to AA and share it. Right? It was desperation, the gift of desperation. And the words were have enough, I have other work for you to do. And what God will do for us is connect the dots when we don't have the power or the intuitiveness to do it. And we don't at the beginning. We don't know which end is up. We're just in pain. Please come get me. I don't know what to do. And that's where I was. I was not thinking of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was certainly not thinking of getting into another treatment center. Nothing to do with recovery. It was, I don't want to die. And I had no, else, no clue what else to do. And what God does is open up the door, grab us, and say, let's go. And what he did was gave me the intuitive thought to call my dad, who I hadn't seen in a long time. Because the only pers person on this planet who's going to come get me in this condition, this particular day, was my old man. That's it. And God said, call him. My dad was in Atlantic City, about four hours south of where I was, and he had this intuitive thought that I was in trouble. He was gambling, watching, going to see a show, have dinner, spend a weekend down there with his wife. And he told me to start my first day of birthday. He said, I got it, what he called a feeling in his gut that something was wrong with you. And I left Atlantic City, dropped his wife's voice. I got to go find my son. Something's wrong. I know it. And I feel it. See how God works through people, not only people in AA. So my dad's trekking through the streets of Brooklyn and he finds me. 
So the guy used to drive around through the projects into the hood with my uncle with a photo of me and pay off the winos and the junkies, say, where is he? Is my son, right? 20 bucks, he's up on a roof, he's in the back, whatever it was. So my dad starts looking for me, and as God would see fit, connected the dots, and my dad finds me running like a lunatic to the streets, desperate, in pain, don't know what to do. What, what am I going to do with this? I had no money. I'm vibrating. I'm shaking. I'm sick. And my dad, i never forget, I was standing off the corner, and he drove up, and this time he didn't scream my name like the time he, he caught me stealing. My dad called me like any one of us who have lost our children, and we find them. Right? See, God kind of looks at it like this. The sheep leaves the herd. We go get the sheep and bring them back. This is the herd. They leave. Let's go get them. If they don't want to come back, we encourage them to come back, whether they come back that night or the next day. They need to know that there's a door open. They need to know they can always come home. And after all the damage I did, it would have been very easy to justify and rationalize in my dad's mind to say, I'm done with this one. Turn around, walk away. Did not do that. This is how God works. Gave my dad a seat of compassion for his son. And he just called my name. He walked across the street. He walked across the street. And I remember saying, Dad, I'm okay. And when he got close, I collapsed. I collapsed and I leaned on my dad. This I remember very clearly. Because my dad's not the hug, hug kind of guy. You know. Never said, I love you. I mean, we, we know what I'm talking about. This tough character. There's no one on the planet I want to be in a foxhole with, by the way, than my dad. Because I know one way or the other, the enemy's coming, we're getting out. It's like Rambo, you know. <laughs> and I collapsed in my dad's arms, and he held me up, and our roots were grasping new soil in the worst moment in both of our lives. Right? Out of this wreckage was to emerge a new relationship and a new me. Didn't feel it at the time. What my dad kept doing was holding me up, and I remember this very clearly, patting me on the back, and he kept saying, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son. Over and over, I'm not going to lose my son to this. Right? I was very mindful of what was going on. My dad's hugging me. Now, as a young guy, um, when you got this strong male figure, when they're close, there's some feeling, guys, you know what I'm talking about, like dad's my protector. He's my guy. That I, I, here I am at 28, and I'm feeling like a little 10-year-old kid who's being protected by his dad for the first time. I got, this guy's on my side. I felt almost okay with that. I was dying to the old self. Both of us were. The relationship, the relationship was dying, and what was emerging was these new people. And off I went to my seven treatment center, and I was in there about 10 days or so, and the insidious insanity of the first drink was galloping back. Bill talks about the Mayflower Hotel. Back and forth, back and forth. Back. Sanity returns, get a drunk. Well, 10 days in this, in this treatment center, and I want a drink again. Just one more drink, because I'm sick. Detox was horrible. I'm still vibrant. I can't hold any food. I'm still sweating. I'm still cold. Just a Mr. Boston, I'd be okay. And they sent me off to uh, Minnesota. And I went out there, and I went from the treatment, and there was a meeting out there. I always like to share it from a podium called the Three Legacies Meeting. And those folks got dressed like I am tonight at the podium. It was a meeting probably twice this size on a Friday night. And they looked recovered, and they said, Welcome. 
And they would take me to the diner and I had no money and they'd buy me some food. Didn't make me feel cheap for not having food. Didn't embarrass me. It just says, you're with us now. And they would take me into their homes and watch, you know, games. I remember there was a Viking 49er playoff game and all these AAs were there. And I remember hearing, can't deny what I hear, can't deny what I see. They were talking about life's challenges. Life is problematic. The spirit is not a problem. Life is problematic. And I'm not part of that. My life, the essence of my life is my center, my God. Jobs, no jobs. Relationship, no relationships. I can't ride that roller coaster. Stuff's going to happen. And they talked about how they walked through these things with grace and dignity, recovered men and women. I wanted more than ever what you guys had to offer. And the proof was in the pudding because you were taking care of me. You didn't talk a good game. You were walking a great game. And I saw it firsthand. I was falling in love with you guys. It was the first time I felt okay to be around a group of folks where no one was judging me. This is the only place on the planet where I tell you the sickest, twisted up things I ever did. And you said, here's my number. Give me a call. Right? Or we say, I identify with that. Right? Stuff you don't do around the water cooler at work, right? What was the coolest thing? Well, after about 10 months, I was brought home and uh, I found my first appointed teacher, a gentleman by the name of Tony N. in Brooklyn. And he was a boot camp drill sergeant with the big book. Took no prisoners. You want what I have or get someone else? I love guys like that at the beginning because I couldn't think. I couldn't figure stuff out. I needed you to tell me what to do. And then the reliance becomes upon God and not the sponsor. And he had to wean me off of that. But at the beginning, I need total dependence. I don't know what to do. I came and wake up in the morning, remember to take a shower. Please tell me. Yesterday, I was talking about making these little lists. I had to make a list of reminding myself things to do. And I had a good sponsor who moved me through from the cover through the first portion of the big book. And we went through the steps and things changed. And I start to take this message into my home occupation affairs. About uh, 10 or 12 years with this sponsor, and I was uh, a new teacher showed up. Because sponsors can get sick. And Mark H. showed up, and I started going through the steps 1 through 9, killing off self, accessing power 10, 11, and 12. That power takes me back to 1 through 9, kill off self, new power. And this is how I was doing this and getting a deeper, more effective relationship with a God of my understanding to be of service to others. It wasn't about me anymore. My life was completely revolutionized. The family that was shattered by alcoholics, by alcoholism, has now recovered. We have our stuff, like most families, but we commend shoulder to shoulder. I have a home group. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I continually work through the steps. I sponsor a whole bunch of men in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is my life, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll just close with a quick story of how the power of God hears our heart, reads our soul, knows when I'm in pain, knows when I'm weeping, knows what to feed me when I need it. And we chop wood and carry water, chop wood and carry water. The ground's fertile, God will do the growing. Not a day shy, not a day after, but at the perfect time, because that's God's timing. It's always perfect. And he knows when to feed. And as a, message, as, as a recovered member, I'm supposed to be a messenger for God, not look to be served anymore. And one of those ways is I go and I sit in prayer and meditation. And through the practice of prayer and meditation, God has reconciled a whole bunch of things for me, like this missing of mom. To the power of prayer and meditation, the answer was delivered to me that completely changed my life, where I got to a place of knowing that I am known by my Creator. 
Always wonder what happened to mom. I was in a drunken stupor one time and cursed God. I said, let mom show up one time. I want to hug this woman. You took her from me. How dare you? You so-and-so. How could you do that? What kind of loving God are you? Mom said you were loving. You're cruel. And God got it from me. Well, a bunch of years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm working with prayer and meditation. And a bunch of years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to my little religious community and lighting candles. One for the sick and suffering and one for mom, wherever she is. Because I was losing this thing where this heaven thing seems a little too out there for me. I need something concrete. I need to touch the hand here. I need to touch the hand of God. So I'm lighting these candles and working with prayer and meditation. Oh, about eight or nine years into practicing the 12 steps and, and prayer meditation and lighting these candles, I sit in a meditation one morning and I find myself on a beach. Anyone knows me knows I love the beach. I live across the street from the beach now. I live in, par- for me, paradise. I live in South Florida across the street from the beach. I get to run there. I watch the sun come up. I go down to the other side of my building, and I watch the sun set. It's paradise. And in this meditation, God took me to what I love, the beach. And I'm sitting there, and out of the water appears my conception of God. And out of my conception of God appears my mom. I never realized the significance of that. It was oneness. There weren't two people walking. It was oneness like we walk with God, one, attached to that power that we cannot see. But sometimes we do. And this power shows up with my mom. And she kneels down and hugs me. And I become this eight-year-old boy. Eight, between ages eight and ten, was one of the worst times in my life. She knelt down and held me. And she stood up, and I became an adult when I stood up, and she held me once more. I got that hug. And she pointed off to the left, and she pointed off to the right. And there were all these flickering lights, hundreds of lights flickering. My, my, my heavenly father put his arm around me, eyeball to eyeball. He said, she's okay, she's with me, without saying a word. No words were spoken. No, needs, no words need to be spoken, but the message was delivered. She's okay, she's with me. Peace, love, and tranquility like I never experienced in my life. Completely wrapped in a warm blanket. Mom held me one more. Two of them walked away, became one. I come out of meditation, I'm weeping. I don't know if this meditation was five minutes long or an hour and a half long. I have no clue till this day. But I was weeping and confused. I called my sponsor to have a sponsor who's in this book, who's awakened and enlightened. We have gurus and Alcoholics Anonymous. You have to go to India to find a guru. We have them in AA. <laughs> One with the Spirit. One with God. One with God. One with God having a current experience to this God. I call up my sponsor who was enlightened. He was an awakening. He was a guru in AA. Yeah, I shared what just happened to me. I said, I don't get this, what happened. And I don't get all these lights flickering. What is that? And he said without missing a beat, Peter, haven't you been lighting candles for your mom now for about eight or nine years? He says, yeah, she got them. She let you know she got them. And at that moment, I began to break and weep, but it was a, a tears of joy because what came to me is my heavenly Father knows me. I'm knowing that I am known by my Creator. I'm no longer turping the world on a level of human consciousness, no longer attached to the chaos, but moving along the lines of God consciousness. And sometimes that requires me just being still and waiting for an invitation. What a way to live. Joy is happy and free. doesn't even sum it up. 
And I've been through near bankruptcy. I've been through a divorce. I've been through can't get a job, can't get arrested. I've been down that route in AA. Had a home, the wife, the house with the white picket fence, lose it all in a divorce, no money in the account. What am I going to do now? Chop wood, carry water. God will provide. And sometimes the things that we get attached to, God removes because they're going to be in the way. He sees a little bit further down the road than I can. And sometimes things look, hey, I'm holding on to this because I really want this. God goes, not good for you. And then we do like kids. I want it. (laughs) And God removes it because there's a path. The path for us has been laid out. I just need to be awake enough to see it. God got me sober, got us sober for a reason. We were born for a reason. There's a path that each one of us has to take. Whether it's being a homemaker, a carpenter, an accountant, whatever it is, we're members of AA and His glorious fellowship. There's a path for us to take. It's already laid out. And in God's world, there is no gravity. There is no leap of faith. So just chop wood, carry water. And the abundance, it's a great word, abundance is for every one of us. We would give our children everything if we could. Why wouldn't our Heavenly Father give us all of it? It starts with Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all I got. Peace.